1: Good to see you. You look familiar. (laughs) Did you know there's a band called Quatermass? I did not. There is, and they have done a variety of songs in the 70s. The one that we just heard was called Black Sheep of the Family. It's from the 1970 album Quatermass. It's available on Apple Music. So
2: did it hit like the top of the pop charts in the UK? Uh,
1: I don't know. By the look on your face, you've never heard of it. So I, have uh, to, I <laughs> have to admit I have not. I had neither. You know, I search for the some. The, I, I do searches related, and that's how I come up with the, these things. And all I got for Quatermass was a, a group. They've got a couple albums.
2: Well, then they yeah they're not just a flash in the pan. No, you no. Know, they had a, at least a couple flash.
1: So we're uh, listening to them. If it's not obvious to everyone, you want to say why?
2: We have uh, decided to take a look at the Quatermass Trilogy. Not the Quatermass, the Quatermass Trilogy. From Hammer Films, the uh, Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2, and Quatermass and the Pit. Of course, all of which have gone by various other titles, and we'll get to that when we take a look at those three films. We'll be talking a little bit about the television shows that came before and after and uh, a little bit about Nigel Neal, the uh, writer and creator of the uh, the character. These are classics. The first and the third film get talked about a lot. The second one doesn't get talked about as much. And, and I'm going to get on my soapbox and, and, and preach when it comes time. I think all of them are, are a lot of fun. Definitely uh, sci-fi horror. We've got creepy crawlies from outer space as only Hammer Could do it. That is our theme for the month.
1: And I have theories as well about Quatermass 2 that I would be happy to share I do want to just kind of make a blanket statement that these films are beloved and it seems like people feel very strongly about which one is their favorite if you haven't heard of Quatermass it may be because of the other names of the movies because one of the points I want to make is that these are very British. Yes. Quatermass is a big, kind of like Doctor Who, I mean, yeah, to a, a certain extent. Who. Yeah, very that. well known in England. There's been TV and radio shows forever. Not so much over here. It's probably why they weren't. Quatermass wasn't used in the names. But it's is an interesting character. I can't wait to talk about him. So. You want to say the other names just in case uh, somebody isn't familiar and the, they may think, oh, yeah, I've seen enemy from space (laughs)
2: absolutely so uh creeping unknown is the other title for the first film Um, enemy from space is the other title for Quatermass mass 2 and Quatermass mass in the pit is also known as five million years to earth definitely all three of these movies as we'll talk about are readily available which is nice because there was a time that they weren't especially the second film was kind of harder to find there for a while Easily found. If you haven't played at home and uh, watched ahead of time, you can stop now and watch or uh, listen to what we have to say and watch afterwards.
1: There probably will be spoilers because all three of these movies really revolve around what's happening and we're going to have to talk about what's happening.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: We have been gone for a month. I'm back. The world has changed. There's no more COVID. We're out of the pandemic. Uh, and, and I, as we hinted earlier, I am in person with Richard this month down in Kansas City. And
2: I think we should introduce ourselves. I don't think you oh, mentioned. Oh well. We're... Okay. See, we see. We're two months. <laughs> we're not recording. It's like, what do we do? We're stumbling.
1: Yes. Well, but I do. Before we do that, I just want to say, COVID's definitely over down here. No one's wearing masks or anything. So <laughs> I just assume it's over. <laughs>
2: That's a little tongue in cheek there yes. a little bit, but yeah. so who are you? Uh who am I? Yes, well I'm I'm Richard Chamberlain from the uh, I was gonna say the Classic Horrors Club <laughs> Podcast. There's a shocker from ccentifile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com.
1: And I'm Jeff Owens from classic just like riding a bike you know we're just right into it without a hitch uh well, no bumps in the road yeah
2: we're, we're recording face to face jeff came down for the weekend he had some uh some business to take care of and then we got to do some fun stuff today but it is the first time we've recorded face to face actually recorded the episode proper since november of 2019 We're actually set up at a different location than we've ever done before. So normally we did it in the media room. We're actually doing it in my office because we've got uh, two desks now side by side in here. I have to say congratulations. The reason that we took off was that you had studying to do for work and you did well. You passed. You succeeded. You got certified.
1: And I just have to say, since I have this forum, I was concerned about what it would be like studying as an adult. It's been years since I've studied for a test or taken a class or anything. It is hard. Let me tell you, my attention span has shortened through the age of social media and electronic handheld devices. I couldn't sit still or stay patient (laughs) to study for very long. So I wasn't sure I was going to have success, but uh, I'm glad I did. And hopefully I don't have to do something like that again very soon because it was hard i needed that month off i couldn't sit down and do it i had to really spread it out since i'm back we're back i bet we have a ton of old business do we have a ton of old business Ah, we got yeah you know (laughs) (laughs) we have uh some new members that's always wonderful i would like to welcome Uh, which hopefully I bet you've probably done on Facebook. But these are people who uh, have joined the Facebook group page, the Classic Horse Club Podcast. I'm
2: pretty sure we're caught up as we're recording. It's a little harder to do, as we've mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I hope we haven't missed anybody.
1: Yes, but we are going to welcome Nikki Roma, Benjamin Foxtrot, Will Moss, and Charlie Phillips.
2: Welcome one and all.
1: Yes, and we do want to welcome also somebody special. We have something new. We have an honorary member. Our very
2: first honorary member, yeah. So if you watch our video feeds, you will have seen a video that we posted early January where we did a shout-out to our friend Dario. Dario's parents are... You're probably familiar with them if you're on Facebook. Justin Giallo and his wife Nikki. They're monster kids just like the rest of us. Dario was having some issues at school. He was getting bullied, and I think... Most of us monster kids have probably experienced bullying of some kind or another at one point. Uh, Certainly when we were younger and before social media, finding like-minded individuals who liked all the cool stuff that we did was sometimes hard. It struck a chord with me. Uh, I could tell just by the various social media posts that Dario was, uh, was one cool kid, and it really bothered me that he was getting picked on, simply because he didn't fit the mold. I reached out to Jeff, and so we did a special video shout-out to him and made him an honorary member, the first ever, of the Classic Horse Club. As we started recording, we uh, opened up an envelope that uh, Dario sent us. It's pretty cool. I think we'll put a picture of it up on uh, social media for sure. But Dario gave us a uh, Valentine's, and uh, if you can see right now, it's a very cool... Rendition of the Classic Horrors Club podcast uh, logo. And uh, we each got uh, cool valentines. Mine is the Phantom of the Opera, and it says you're a scream. Jeff got one. What what is yours? Yeah,
1: mine is the Wolfman. Here's to a full moon on Valentine's Day. It is so awesome. Thank you, Dario.
2: Yeah, very, very cool. Very unexpected. We did it simply because it was was important to us, and uh, we didn't expect any... Anything in return.
1: And you know what this means for Dario. He has to call and leave us feedback. (laughs) Yeah, I was just teasing trying to turn that into an awkward segue because next we do have some feedback. (laughs) From our friend Jonathan. Jonathan left us a voicemail because he called our number. How are your vocal cords? Are they out of practice?
2: I I, I will do. I think I'm good. Okay. Last month was bad. I'm good now.
1: All right. So he was able to leave us a voicemail by calling. And by the way, thank God he did because I got another one of those emails where the line was going inactive if somebody didn't use it. Anyway, okay. He called 616-649-2582, 616-649-2582 club oh man you put effort into that i did it it's okay sometimes when we put effort into things it doesn't turn out that's okay wow <laughs> harsh harsh so let's uh hear what jonathan has to say
2: hey
3: jeff and rich it's jonathan and Garola, your old pal finally calling in i know it's been a long time since i left left any feedback but i had to call in even though i know it's a little bit after the fact, but I know you've hit your five-year anniversary uh, in doing the Classic Horrors Club podcast, and that is just amazing. And I can't believe it's been five years already. Yeah, I just wanted to say congrats again. Your show has just always been a pleasure. Your insight, your humor, your wit shines through in every episode. And I just love how you guys put together your themed episodes, I'm always excited to hear, you know, what you're going to come up with next. I mean, I know some of the more recent ones were, you know, Nashy November and Christopher Lee Christmas, Satanic September. Um, and I feel like I've seen a lot of films, but, you know, you guys I think do a great job of including films that are necessarily not, you know, the forefront in everyone's mind when it comes to, say, Christopher Lee. I know you focus on some of his European i think some of his italian uh the italian films that he started and um he's done the same for uh barbara Steele and some other actors just keep it coming because it's just been great i hope like other folks have said i hope you go another five years and another five after that and really just keep them coming um I know you're doing, uh, Quatermass in this episode, so I'm really excited about that. I love the Quatermass films. Uh, and I actually got my wife, I got Yasmin intrigued by these films as well, and we watched the first two. So, 1955 Quatermass Experiment, uh, Quatermass 2, 1957. We have not done, um, Quatermass in the Pit yet, so I'll be very excited. Well, obviously I've seen all of them multiple times, but I cannot wait to hear Yasmin's reaction so far. Uh, her favorite is the first. Uh, I mean, she liked the second as well, but I think uh, the first really resonated with her. I think she was taken aback at how kind of uh, smart and well-paced uh, the films are. Um, and she likes Brian Dunleavy as Quatermass, so I'm going to be really curious what she thinks of um, Andrew Keir and Quatermass in the pit, because that's, you know, still kind of uh, a bull in a china shop in some ways, his approach, but in uh, other ways, you know, he takes the character in other directions. And obviously it's 10 years after uh, Quatermass. of 67, I believe, so that's 10 years after Quatermass 2. So it's a different time and a different time for Hammer as well. So, you know, I'll be very curious, you know, what she thinks of that. So congratulations again, guys. No, it's just been a blast. And you guys are just, you are just two classy, fun guys that um, I think we're all better off for knowing you. So uh, that's just from a personal Standpoint. Also, and maybe since I've gotten Yasmin into some of these the Crater Mass films, I've just gotten, kind of gotten a little intrigued uh, by some of the other films. We watched Tarantula the other day, Tarantula, and um, a few other things. So I think I, I think I'm, she's dipping her toe in a little bit. So maybe I'll have her join me and giving some feedback one of these days. I couldn't do it for this one for Crater Mass because it is almost 11 o'clock and she and Stella <laughs> are asleep. So. I'm slipping in this feedback now. And, uh, but next time, who knows, maybe I'll have, her, I'll have her join me to leave some feedback. Anyway, uh, we'll talk to you guys soon, and um, take care. Bye-bye.
1: All right, Jonathan, you put it out there. You have to make it happen. We expect feedback from Yasmeen next time. So uh, we're left hanging. We don't know what she thought of the third Quatermass movie. We want to hear, it and we want to hear it from her. Throw in a little Stella, too. That might be nice to hear from her, but definitely Yasmin.
2: Carla did watch all three of these movies. Uh, eh, not as big a fan. I I,
1: I was kind of thinking
2: she'd enjoy him a little bit more, but I understand her reasons for not, and we'll get into that. The character of, of Quatermass is not Mr. Warm and Fuzzy. We look forward to some more feedback. Good, good hearing from you, uh, hearing your voice. You and I and Jeff, we always touch base about every Friday. We wish each other TGIF and, and share some conversation, which is very cool.
1: You know the implications of this because it wasn't just Quatermass. She's been watching other movies with him. Tarantula. I see a bright light rising on the East Coast. You know, we've, we've got a new, new person joining us.
2: Well, and you know, we've got a little something called Monster Bash just a few months down the road. I don't know if we'll see Jonathan, but you know, if we get her hooked maybe that'll just inspire her to want to come visit as well
1: and very nice things you said thank you very much we think uh, the oh, world of you jonathan yeah so. absolutely
2: thank you very much for that
1: are we ready then any more old business
2: i don't think we have any more business to talk about all right then you can't escape it
0: maggie look Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again. Both of them has come terror in the form of The Creeping Unknown. Three men went into outer space. Only one of them came back. Came back a strange, distorted creature, haunted and possessed by something beyond human understanding. What was the terrible secret he could not tell them?
4: There's a whole new world out there, a wilderness, uncharted. And he's been there, and come back. He's got the map. Unlock his mind for me, Briscoe, and find it. I know you can do it. If it isn't just a question I know stuff. the strain and tension you've been under, but to stop now when we're so close... Brian Donlevy, he dared an experiment that shocked a nation.
0: You've destroyed him like you've destroyed everything else you've touched, can't.
4: There's no room for personal feelings in science, Judith. An experiment that created...
0: The Creeping Unknown.
5: I want to call around the entire area, evacuate all public. Get information to check up every movement that's likely to take place inside this radius tonight.
1: Yes, sir.
4: Warn everyone not to touch anything unusual they may find in the streets.
2: scientist Bernard Quatermass deliberately sends a rocket into space without official sanction, and it's brought something back with it. The investigation of minus two, the two astronauts who did not survive the journey, leads to the investigation of the plus one, the one that did. Something beyond our understanding at the moment is happening, and the third astronaut is on the loose as his body is mutating.
1: The Quatermass Mass Experiment was released in London on August 26, 1955, and then in the United States as The Creeping Unknown on April 26, 1956. It was written by Richard Landau and Val Guest, based on the BBC television play by Nigel Neal, and the film was directed by Val Guest. How'd you like it, Richard? Well, this is not a first-time
2: viewing for me. Uh, I've seen this one quite a few times over the years i i had this on vhs i had it on dvd i owned it on blu-ray and then i've seen it live saw it at the uh, cinema go-go i'm looking at the poster here april 22nd 2016 Um, it was paired with the crawling eye i remember the crawling eye was the first movie of the night and it was you know got the cheesy response from the crowd but and nothing cheesy about this one. This, this got the love and respect of everyone in the audience. that played the second half of the night. I enjoy this film. Interesting that with the other two films, you know, I, I'd seen one. I hadn't seen the other. This is the one that I have had the most exposure to. And I kind of came into this trilogy thinking this was going to be the movie that I was going to like the best out of the three. Spoiler alert, that's not the case. I really do enjoy it, though. It, it's a really good film. I think that in all three of these films, the the character of Quatermass is, is, I think he's just played very differently. And even though Brian Dunleavy plays him in the first two films, I think there's enough of a difference in, in the way he plays the character in the second film that this one, when you compare it with the other two films, he's definitely much more abrupt, much more, he can be an asshole at times. I mean, he he really can at times. He's, he's definitely very matter of the fact. He doesn't throw emotions into anything. I mean, he's not looking at it as, you know, gosh, there's someone who's mutating and this is a human being. I mean, to him, it's, it's science. It's, you know, above all else. And damn the torpedoes, no matter who gets, in the way science needs to forge ahead. And and I think this movie more than the other two, he can be a bit rough around the edges.
1: Did that ever give you a comical effect? Did you, you know, find humor in the way he was acting?
2: There were some times. Yeah. I mean, just kind of like the way and I can't give you an example, but I do know there were a few times that I was just kind of like, good God. (laughs) You know, it's like, how cold can you get? He needs to kind of, you know, chill out a little bit. I think maybe I've noticed it more in this film with this viewing because I watched it with Carla and she picks up on that kind of stuff. And especially as we made our way through the other films, she really goes back and she said, well, he was the hardest to get to like in the first film. He's he's a rough character and it's like he's not to the point where you hate him. But he's a lot harder to get to like in this one as opposed to the other films which i think is interesting though when you look at the films as a complete trilogy over the course of what 12 years and two different actors if you think of it as the same character there's a journey though i mean in in this film he's starting this program essentially he's in the early phases of exploration and he's got people backing him and he's, he's all about again science and and Doesn't matter what the cost, we're we're gonna send men up to to space. We're gonna send them out there. Okay, so we lost two and we technically lost three. Let's just forge ahead. And by the time you get to the second movie, he's been kind of chopped down a little bit. You know, he he's not up on that high pedestal that he is in this film. He's been knocked down to size a little bit. And I think by the time you get to the third one, He's really knocked down and he's also 12 years or 10 years older, even though different actors playing him, if you assume it's the same character, you know, it's played off that way. Then you see him as a guy that in that film, he almost comes across as a defeated at times, still with a wonder and a, and a passion for science, but in a much more kind of reserved way, which from what I understand, is the way that Nigel Neal really preferred him to be played. He he prefers the third film over the first two, and a lot of it's because he just didn't care for Brian Dunleavy's performance. Let, let's stop right here and, and just give a little bit of background on kind of what preceded this film and and Nigel Neal's involvement. I mean, he's he's the creator of the character and was heavily involved in the original three made-for-television productions, two of which, definitely the first of which actually predated this film. Another kind of followed in sync with this film. So The the Quatermass Experiment, the the original television production, it aired on BBC television in the summer of 1963. It was six 30-minute episodes, Reginald Tate, played Quatermass. Um, This was the first science fiction production that was really, I should say, first science fiction television production that was really targeted for adults. If you look at Doctor Who, for example, which came a decade later, it was primarily created as a children's show, even though it was, I think, a bit more adult in the 60s, got a little bit Campier as time wore on. The original Quatermass experiment was an adult science fiction adventure. Sadly, only two episodes still exist. Much like early Doctor Who episodes, the the episodes were wiped by the BBC, and because of the way that that it was done live, it's thought that we're just not going to find the remaining episodes. Nigel Neal was involved heavily in the production. And when they had took his script and adapted it for this movie, they did change a lot of things. And, and again, the character of, of Quatermass was changed, and which leads to Nigel Neal's disliking of the film because Brian Dunlevy is not who he would have cast in that role. He plays him differently. Reginald Tate, unfortunately, he was going to come back in the second television production, which was called Quatermass Two. Which aired on BBC in the fall of 1955. But one day after the final episode, I'm trying to remember here. I mean, there's like the timing of this is that Reginald Tate died. I think he died. did. He die in 1953 or 55. I have 55, but I think I may. I think it may have been 53, 58, died of a heart attack. So they had to recast the role uh, for Quatermass Two, which aired in the fall of 55. And that was John Robinson. Uh, He was not as popular as Reginald Tate. His performance was lackluster. He had difficulty learning lines. Quatermass 2 of the four television productions is considered like the lesser of the four, uh, mostly because of his performance. Now, all six episodes, uh, it was six episodes, 30 minute long. All of them do exist. So we do have those to, to look at. Um, I was going to try to watch some of them before we recorded, but I didn't get a chance to. But they are out there. And then Quatermass in the Pit aired on BBC at the end of 1958, early 59. So by this point, they will have done two movies by the time they did this. And Andre Morell assumed the role for the uh, third television production. All six episodes of that still exist. That particular story is often compared to a doctor who story that we'll I'll probably touch on when we talk about that movie. It's considered the best of the four television productions. So Nigel Neal, you know, never really, you know, happy with these first two films because of Brian Dunlavy and because his scripts were, were kind of taken and twisted and he did. And he also didn't really, he didn't have any control over it because the BBC allowed, you know, Hammer Productions to basically take it and go with it. As I understand, was not compensated because it wasn't his property. He wrote it for the BBC, so it became BBC's property, and they could do whatever they wanted with it. That added, I think, to the fact that he kind of grumbled because he really he wasn't involved in the production at all either. That did change by the time the third movie comes around, which probably plays a part in why he was a little bit happier with that production. Nigel Neal did do. Some other films, he disliked Doctor Who, coincidentally, because he felt like Doctor Who ripped off his ideas, which, you know, it's I mean, there's definitely some similarities, but there's definitely some differences. So I could see why there's some comparisons. But to say that they ripped off the idea, I don't know. There's arguments on both sides of the fence. But he did write the stone tape. Nineteen seventy-two, which I don't know if you have you had a chance to see that.
1: I've never seen. I've heard of it. It's supposed to be really good, isn't it?
2: I've got it. I've, I've got it, and it, it is actually. I mean, it's a made-for-TV you know production, so it's cheap, but it's actually really good. I don't know how I didn't know this, but I I did not realize he was involved in Halloween three season of the witch. Did not know that John Landis wanted him to do a remake of uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. That never happened, but that led to Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, apparently. Hmm. The thing is, though, this is where I thought it was funny. So he did the 1989 adaptation of The Woman in Black. Author Susan Hill wasn't happy because Nigel Neal changed all the script around. He can complain when people do it to him, but then he ended up doing it to her. And he almost, well, he was invited at least to do an episode of The X-Files, they wanted to kind of pay respect because, you know, of, of him being kind of sci fi royalty, but he declined for whatever reason. And Nigel Neal died in 2006 at the age of 84. Little background on, on Nigel Neal and what led to the dissatisfaction. Brian Dunleavy is is definitely, from what I understand, very different than what we saw on television. He's obviously very different than what we get in the third movie. That said, I don't have problems with him like I know some other people do. Some people really don't care for his performance. He's a little standoffish. He takes a little bit of getting used to. You don't get a lot of warm fuzzies from him, but he definitely does soften by the time you get to the second film.
1: He's very impatient. He's cranky. He's unapologetic. He's so singularly focused. I didn't find it comical, but I smiled a lot. Some of his lines are very clever. He was acting like Dr. McCoy when he said... I'm a scientist, not a fortune teller. know, yeah, that's our Star Trek connection. You yeah. did it. I didn't and do it. He, the wife of this guy that's transforming, he calls her a stupid idiot. You know, I wonder if it's like emotional intelligence, if he's lacking that or just any concern. I suppose yeah. you could be considered some form of psychopath. Isn't that somebody that like has no concern for others? That's that character or else it would just be any other professor. What's yeah. interesting is that we have no backstory on him in any of these movies. We only have his personality to make the character and, and the movie, really. Yeah, and that's, that's true. enough. You know, a lot of times you complain there's no character development. You don't know their backstory. I never found myself in any, any of the three wondering,
2: hmm,
1: I wonder where he went to school. Or
2: I, I pretty much imagine that he was that way as a kid. He was that way in school. I mean, I think that's just kind of You know, I just I can't imagine him being this carefree, you know, lad in in school and and hanging out with the guys and playing soccer, you know, or excuse me, football. Who we get is who he is as a person. And I feel like that's who he's always been as a person.
1: Now, let's kind of talk about his opposite, because in two of the movies, he's sort of paired with his kind of an opposite, Inspector Lomax. Yeah, uh, Two different actors play him. And then the third, there's not Lomax, but there's another character that kind of fills that role. So yeah. you kind of need, I don't know that you need it, but it's nice to have that balance. You've got someone to bounce off of him and to kind yeah. of be a positive influence so that it's not all so dire. And it's not just their personalities are different. Prayer Mass is now, 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 let's go, go, go. And there's scenes with Lomax shaving and talking to his wife. And it's just it kind of yeah. balances and makes the pace less frantic, more even, maybe. I like just that, that contrast, because I think only Quatermass in that personality would be too much.
2: If he didn't have, yeah, the Lomax character, yeah, it's like, then who am I cheering for? i you cheering for Quatermass, I, you know, kind of hard to at times. You lose that humanity. You know, then you just have this person dealing with this person. and There's none of that. There's no in between. Omex is a really important character when you look at it that way.
1: I love the idea of the evolution. And by the time of the third movie, he's weary and worn. But when we talk about the second one, I've got a theory that might kind of interfere with that thought. I'll wait till then to share it.
2: Okay, I'm, I, I'm interested in it. The second movie is one that, you know, is like a first time viewing for me. So, and, and I'm still wrapping my head around that one. So I'm open to other ideas.
1: Let's talk about the look of the movie uh, and the story. So it's beautifully shot black and white. And yes. it starts, each one of these movies, but this one in particular, just starts with such a strong, solid opening. I mean, here, this young couple literally taking a role in the hay, you know, out in the country and they see something in the sky and they run for protection. And sure enough, there's an explosion and then there's a rocket sticking out of the ground. I mean, right away. And that's such a great opening.
2: Oh, absolutely. I,
1: I've heard people say that the pace, you know, doesn't let up with all three movies. I get to a point where they drag for me just a little bit. We
2: agree. Yeah. It's somewhere. If you're considering that there's four acts, that third act tends to to kind of drag before things pick up again. Uh, I, I think that definitely for the first two movies, the third movie is a bit more problematic for me. We'll talk about it when we get to that. Yeah, I agree.
1: And the, like I said, the black and white photography ending is equally as, as strong and powerful. No spoilers, but Quatermass walking down the street and it's a shot from above and the lights, it's... Kind of film noirish a little bit, but it's oh, very, beautiful, very,
2: yeah. Beautiful You're looking. Beautifully shot. Um,
1: all three of these, I struggle a little bit with not really understanding what's happening as far as the science. And not that I, I think the science isn't real or, or anything, I wouldn't know, but just like really understanding, like, so this guy, Carew, is transforming and he touches things and he sort of absorbs the properties like his hand takes the properties of the plant or the cactus that he touches. But then it's a leap that then how is he suddenly this Lovecraftian monster climbing up, you know, the side of Westminster Abbey? I And it doesn't matter. I mean, the fact is it's yeah. happening and they've got to stop it. But I am not interested enough to grasp really what is happening.
2: <laughs> there is a bit of a leap there. Um, I've always thought that too. It's like, you know, because for a good chunk of the film, he's humanoid essentially. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, there's that that elevation that, that, you know, kind of almost feel like it goes from A to C without stopping off at B is like, but I roll with it. The movies are, they have a definite British flavor to them. If you think about, typical sci-fi monster films that were happening in the US at that time. They're very different. They're smarter in, in a lot of ways. You know, American films at this time, very formulaic and they can be fun as hell. They're enjoyable. This kind of, you know, had a little bit of the familiar formula, but it was also different in many ways and which can be refreshing. But for me, the third movie, I struggle with the third movie sometimes of trying to understand exactly what's going on here. Yeah. You know, I mean, the second one is probably the most straightforward of the three, you know, when it comes to science. This one, you know, yeah, th- there's a bit of a leap, but it didn't lose me. No. Um, it wasn't enough that I'm like, OK, stop the presses. No, I, I kind of kept rolling with the punches and and was enjoyed. You know, enjoying the ride all the way to the very end. But I do see what you're saying,
1: and I love all of these movies. So any criticisms are, are not really yes. criticisms. I mean, do yeah, I, I will.
2: Well, that idea. I love the first two movies.
1: Hmm, that's so interesting.
2: Yeah, we'll talk about the third. I I love loves loves a strong word. I don't know that I can I can say that for the third movie, and that's going to ruffle some feathers because I know that's often the one that people consider the best of the three. So spoiler alert, I don't think
1: that. We talked about the balance of Quatermass and Lomax, but then there's also, it's demonstrated in the movie, but not really talked about. But then again, at the end, there's this science versus faith like battle. This will be a spoiler, but Lomax tells Quatermass, well, you won this time. Uh, And he says, you know, in my own simple way, I did a lot of praying. And then Quatermass doesn't even respond. That's when he goes out. That could have been really heavy-handed and like, way we get it. And it's so subtle. You know, I really like that. This is a, a, a nitpicky thing, but the continuity person was really good on this. When they go into the rocket and they find the empty spacesuits of the two people in the way that they're laying, and then later you see a film when the, the humans were still in those suits. The position is exactly yeah. the same as when they were the bodies were in it and were out of it. And what a detail that could easily be missed and the audience probably wouldn't even notice. but I like noticed that it was exactly the same. I thought that was really cool.
2: This is a top-notch production. They paid a lot of attention to details. I've seen some of the uh, early 1950s hammer sci-fi films. It's been so long. I don't own them. So I remember renting them from Netflix back in the day. I remember that they were good, but this elevated the level of films that when, especially when it comes to, to science fiction, uh, this kind of set the bar uh, a lot higher. Than I think those early nineteen fifties films did, which I can't even remember the name of them right now. Yeah,
1: Four sided triangle and something else. Yeah, uh, you know, they, this is more accessible. It's not quite as like, highbrow. Those are all. Yeah, those are I cool. agree. I mean, yeah. those are like hard sci-fi. Well, I don't know, but they're different. You're right. They're I mean, different. Neither yeah. of those movies started Hammer on its great run of no. like, genre films. It was this one. Yeah, agreed. What can you tell us about the cast? I'm sure you've got information on. I've them. got some
2: tidbits, yes. Yeah, so, of course, we've got Brian Donlevy as uh, Quatermass. Curse of the Fly, 1965, is probably the other genre-related film that he's most well-known for, besides uh, these first two films. But he's also, you know, a lot of other films. He was well-known for uh, Beau Jest, 1939, for example, classic. I- I've heard rumors about. Brian Donlevy having a drinking problem or he was drinking on set was hard to deal with. But I was doing some research. I read some things that maybe put that into doubt a little bit and maybe it was more Nigel Neal's bad mouthing of Brian Donlevy that kind of escalated that persona. He may have been difficult, but I'm, I'm really wondering was he as difficult as he was made out to be or was that Nigel Neal kind of, you know, being the spin doctor of the day because he just didn't like his involvement in the film. Of course, Brian Donnelly does come back in the second film. Uh, He died in 1971, I believe, at the age of 71. I'm not sure if that's right, though. I think I got my numbers wrong, but I know he died at the age of 71 of cancer. Uh, We've got Jack Warner, who played uh, the uh, Inspector Lomax in this movie. Unfortunately, he doesn't come back in the second Biggest movie of note for him: A Christmas Carol from 1951. We've got Marja Dean as Mrs. Judith Caroon. God love her. She's in Mesa of Lost Women, 1953, which is one of my least favorite movies of all time. Dominique commented on Facebook she loved it, and I'm like, man, that one almost broke me. (laughs) She is still alive. Uh, She turns 100 on April 7th. Hmm. And then Richard Woodsworth Blaze, Victor Caroon. Uh, he did several other Hammer films. Camp on Blood Island, 1958, which is one of the Hammer War films. He was in Revenge of Frankenstein in 58, Curse of the Werewolf in 61. He was also in The Tripods in 1984. Did you ever see that series?
1: Mm-mm.
2: It was a sci-fi series. I think it ran for a couple of seasons. I remember getting into Doctor Who in 1983, and then I think maybe it was 84, probably closer to 85, our local PBS station during one of their pledge drives said, hey, we've got a new science fiction show. If we get this number of subscribers, you know, I know they played the first season of the tripods. It was uh, kind of different, basically, these tripods, which kind of looked like the more traditional Martians from More of the World's. Uh, not the ones we got in the original film, but, you know, the actual tripod creatures taking human sacrifices and like, you know, kind of sucking them up into the tripod. I don't remember much more about it other than it was kind of an interesting series. I haven't heard anyone talk about that, and I'm not even sure the availability these days. Hmm. Of course, this is based, as we said, on the, the uh, BBC television series by Nigel Neal. the screenplay by Richard Landau. Other work that he did, Voodoo Island in 57 and Frankenstein 1970 and 58, both with Boris Karloff. He did lots of TV, including The Six Million Dollar Man. He also did The Black Hole in 1979. And then, of course, uh, Val Guest also was involved in the screenplay. And, of course, he was the director of the film. He would go on to come back and direct Quatermass 2. He also did... The Abominable Snowman in 57, Camp on Blood Island in 58. He was one of the directors for Casino Royale in 67. He apparently directed the scenes with Woody Allen and some with David Niven. Hmm. Whatever that's worth. Also did uh, When Dinosaurs Rule the Earth in 1970. And he also did the 1979 uh, television series, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And if I remember correctly, I think... I think this is a Polish series. It was a it, it's a series that w- it was not made in the UK. It is a relatively hard series to find. It has been recognized as being a, a pretty good version of Sherlock Holmes. I've never seen it, but I do have a selection of the episodes. A couple other little tidbits. So this movie, The, the Mass Experiment, of course, known as The Creeping Unknown in the United States, because. No one in the United States knew who Quatermass was. We didn't get to see the, the the BBC television shows, so they changed the head the, the uh, title of the movie. They, of course, spelled it "Experiment with an X" to capitalize on the fact that this was the first X-rated sci-fi film by the British Board of Film Censor. A nice way to cash in on that a little bit. And I thought this was interesting. So the the film. Has a bit of a, a notoriety because in 1956, apparently a uh, nine year old boy by the name of Stuart Cohen died of a ruptured artery in the cinema lobby at a double bill for this movie and the movie it was paired with in the States, which was The Black Sleep, 1956. The parents decided to, well, they tried to sue the theater, which Lake Theater, and uh, the distributors, United Artists, for negligence. Apparently, (laughs) it's kind of as as sad and crazy as it sounds, this young man essentially died of of a heart issue while watching this movie. Believe it or not, Stuart Cohen, this nine-year-old boy who died, is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records as the only known case of someone... Dying of fright while watching a sci-fi horror film.
1: Hmm. Not I don't know that.
2: Yeah, a bizarre way to get in the Guinness Book of World Records, but nonetheless, he is in it. That's all that I had on on this one. Uh, it's this movie is readily available. All three movies are readily available, which is good news. There was a time they weren't. It's available on Kino Lorber Blu-ray for less than twenty dollars. Definitely well worth checking out. Uh, if you're gonna watch, you gotta watch them in order i think it's interesting to see the character develop but you don't have to they're all standalone films essentially there's no references to other events for the most part there's kind of this underlying thing about exploring the moon that's kind of introduced in the in the second film that's mentioned again in the third but beyond that they're they're basically standalone films
1: okay, i'm biting my tongue for when we talk i know i, I know, know. <laughs> In my opinion. You don't leave me asking any questions except one. This came out in 1955. It's a British film. What in the world was going on in
2: 1955? Ah, What was happening in the UK in 1955? Well, this may shock you, but the Queen of England was (laughs) Queen Elizabeth. Winston Churchill was still prime minister, at least until April 6th. He resigned at the age of 80 due to ill health and was replaced by Anthony Eden. Nobody knows Anthony Eden, but Winston Churchill. Everybody should know. The average house price in the north of England was 1,900 pounds. I have no clue what that equaled in American dollars, but 1,900 pounds got you a house in the north of England. Hmm. Newcastle United won the FA Cup. Uh, That's soccer or football, depending on what side of the pond you're on. Uh, They defeated Manchester City at Wembley Stadium. Laurence Olivier's film Richard III is released on April 16th. Ian Fleming's latest James Bond novel, Moonraker, was released. C.S. Lewis also released The Magician's Nephew. I know that it's part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, but it's not the first. It's the first book, but it wasn't the first released. He Hmm. Kind of a prequel, I guess, is the best way to look at that. I think. Also, J.R.R. Tolkien's *Return of the King* was released the same year, concluding the *Lord of the Rings* trilogy. Star Trek reference: Actress Marina Sirtis, aka Counselor Troy, from *Star Trek: The Next Generation* uh, and *Star Trek: Picard*, born on March 29th, and someone you saw not too long ago, Billy Idol, was born on November 30th. On television. The Benny Hill Show debuted on January 15th. People will say, well, that's way too early. Well, Benny Hill actually ran for a very long time over in the UK. And I think he had a couple of different runs. The Benny Hill Show, of course, that got popular on the early days of cable television, obviously, was a much older Benny Hill. But the show started in 1955. Hmm. Another show uh, aired on uh, September 24th on ITV which is kind of the secondary television of the day. Colonel March of Scotland Yard, the television series starring Boris Karloff. The Royal Christmas Message was played on TV for the first time. Top songs in the UK included Mambo Italiano by Rosemary Clooney, Stranger in Paradise by Tony Bennett, and yes, The Arrival of Rock and Roll with Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his comments. That's what was happening in the UK in 1955.
1: Nice. Thank you very much, our historian.
2: Why, thank you for asking. Listen, a whistle. I was right, they're coming down
4: to the hundreds, get hauled. Listen, listen very carefully. If you ever hear a sound like this, run for your life. Run, run before it is too late or if you stay, you will lose your soul. Coming closer, 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 is an enemy from outer space. From out of this world it came, a horrifying terror that threatened mankind, haunting and possessing every human being within range, an indestructible danger beyond all earthly understanding. Vincent Fraudhead is dead. Dead? I watched him die a few hours ago in that plant. His whole body covered with some kind of corrosive poisoning eaten away. It poisoned everything it touched. The mind and the body of man was no longer in his control. They ran from this unknown menace, but there was no escape. We're holding this block. We've got to. At least until the oxygen takes effect. What's in those domes? Yes, sir? Yes, did kill us? Inside those domes are creatures from outside this earth. Ah, you mad? I've seen them. Thousands of tiny creatures that can join together and expand into things a hundred feet high.
2: Professor Quatermass stumbles into another cosmic mystery when he almost hits a woman driving her husband, who has burns all over his face, to the hospital. He's not responsible for this crisis, but takes responsibility for saving the world when he discovers that his rejected prototype for a moon base has been constructed outside a remote village. Meanwhile, meteorites are falling by the hundreds, and not even the government can find the answers.
1: Quatermass 2 was released in London on May 24th, 1957, and in the United States as Enemy from Space in September of 1957. I could not find a specific date. It was written by Nigel Neal and Val Guest and directed by Val Guest. It clocks in at a nice 85 minutes. We did not mention the running time of the first film. It was 82 minutes, so both of them under an hour and a half. What about Quatermass 2, Rich? We've talked about it a little bit.
2: A little bit, yeah. So this was my first time viewing it. I had it on DVD, a bootleg DVD for a while, because it wasn't readily available on DVD for a while. It went, it came out, and went out of print. And the Blu-ray just, sometime in the last couple of years, I think, it came out on Blu-ray. I mean, this is a fairly recent release, I think, from Shout Factory. Uh, And it's still available now for less than $20. So you can easily get your hands on it now. I didn't watch my bootleg and then you bought the Blu-ray and then I got your hand me down So I watched it on DVD. I really liked this movie. I'm not sure that I can explain why necessarily, other than I think it was a combination of things. I don't think it was one thing about this movie that, Made it work a little better for me because I think in some ways, Mass Experiments a better movie. It seemed a little more grander, if you will. But I like Brian Dunlavy's performance in this one a little better. Uh, this is where you got your theory. So for me, I, I think you know we we see him in the first movie and he's 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 up on this pedestal and. Some at some point between the first and second movie, he's been kind of knocked down a little bit. You know, he he had this vision for the moon base, and it's you know kind of getting stalled. And I kind of feel like he's he's still respected, but that maybe he's he's lost a few rounds here and there. You know, that he's he's not necessarily undefeated, so to speak. He's kind of I don't want to say struggling, but he's. Having to prove himself, I think, a little more than he had to in the first movie. And I think that he comes across a little more human in this one. He still is rough around the edges. He still has those moments where he's lacking compassion. But I don't think he's as arrogant in this film as he comes across in the first film. And that makes him a slightly more likable character. Definitely, Carla liked this one the best of the three because of that. I also kind of like the story in this one—the idea that you know these these meteorites are falling and they're building this uh, moon base essentially out, and, and the villagers are you know they're just well, it, they, it's a factory. They're they're just they're working at the factory and they're almost coming to the defense of it, right, for a big chunk of the movie until they realize, well, you know, hang on a second, you know, Professor Quatermass is, is He's not the bad guy. The bad guys are the ones that you've been protecting this whole time. Because at one point, when when Quatermass goes into like the the village town hall, I mean, you, you know, it's like as soon as he starts questioning what's going on out at the uh, at the site, I think it was the mayor or whoever the the representative of the community was. Boy, they they got defensive and they're like, they give us jobs, you know. They're we're going to come to their defense, you know. Who are you to make these accusations. And I almost feel like he's he's more of a hero in this one than the first one, as the way it just kind of plays out a little bit.
1: But what do you think? What, what's yeah, you really well, it's on a wider it? scale. I mean, that, to me, you said you couldn't quite pinpoint. It was probably a combination of things. You're right. But for me, it's got that layer of conspiracy. I'm not going to say government conspiracy, because it's not exactly, but it's a conspiracy. And that makes it uh, to me, that always adds an interesting layer to it. Uh, and, and it is, a, I think, a wider scale. The states are higher. You know, it's not just one monster creeping. Its implications are much larger. And a little bit of an Invasion of the Body Snatchers vibe to it. A little bit. Yeah, those are, I, I liked it a lot, equally, as much as Mass experience. Ex- I did it again, experiment. So here's my theory. I don't know that this is a sequel. I think this could have happened first. Hmm. You mentioned there's not really any reference to any of the previous movies. And so maybe instead of him being knocked down, maybe he's getting built up. Maybe he's really cranky in Experiment because of what happened here. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of this doesn't take place in his lab. But when he goes back to his lab, there's a rocket sitting on the launching pad. At the end and the climax, he launches it. You know, there's no mention that, oh, he's done this before. He's launched a rocket.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I guess you could say we're skipping a step because you don't go to a moon base until you've had a rocket. But, you know, maybe that's his goal. And uh, when he sends the rocket yeah. up, it was to go to the moon. I, I don't know. I just really got a feeling that I'm not so sure this goes in order. Sure, it's Quatermass mass too. But, you know, who's... I don't know. I think it could make a case that this movie really happened first.
2: In the first movie, do we see a scene where Quatermass and Lomax meet for the first time? Or are they already working together? Right no, now?
1: it seems like they've know, known each other.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'd be willing to buy that theory. I, Right off the top of my head, I can't think of anything that I could sit there and say, you're wrong and this is
1: why. Yeah, it also kind of lines him up a little better because we've got this reversal where in the first one, it's all Quatermass's fault. And then, you know, from that point on, he just kind of stumbles into it. You know, his experience in this one, maybe that's given him information and knowledge that that makes him bolder. And plus, he's kind of screwed around a little bit in this one so that maybe he's, you know, becoming stronger in his ways. We said in the synopsis that in the first one, he launched the rocket, you know, unauthorized, it wasn't sanctioned by the government. He just did it on his own. Well, how did he get the you know, gumption to to do that? I don't yeah. know. I, I just I could easily see this leading into the events of the first one instead of vice versa.
2: It's, it's a solid theory right off the top of my head. I can't come up with anything that would dispute that other than you know just the basic that's called Quatermass 2 and you know it it was the second right television show yeah. so
1: do you know that, was it none of these three were original for movies they were all adaptations of tv i mean was the tv quatermass 2 this same story
2: uh more or less yeah it, okay. it more or less that it was yes they played around with it you know mm-hmm. but there's definitely similarities you know now nigel neal he did co-write the screenplay uh with with val guest on this one so he was at least a little more involved in the story he still had really very little say and so again brian dunlavey is back and that was not his choice but he had no involvement in the in the production how much he was involved in that screenplay i guess you know remains to be seen. I don't know if it was him getting credit more so because it was his ideas. Certainly that's not the way they credit it in the first
1: movie. I think the reason I asked that is it this, the credits don't say based on something, whereas the first one said based on the BBC television. Having not
2: seen, I don't know how much they are different. Uh, I do know that they definitely played around with the storyline. And I, you, the more I'm thinking about it, I think this one might be the one that had probably the most changes from the original script, but don't quote me on that. I can't, I can't recall. Like I said, I had I'd hoped to watch these before and I didn't get a chance to. So there's something I would definitely you know want to watch and I'm going into it. I know what early 1960s doctor who television is. So like, okay, so now we're going almost a decade before that I'm anticipating Wibbly-wobbly sets and, you know, low-budget production, I'm okay with that. You got to go, I think, into low expectations a little bit because it is early British television. And and British television seemed to be a little behind the curve compared to American TV. So, you know, if you're talking mid-1950s British television, kind of compare it to, say, you know, circa late 40s, 49, 1950 American television, which was pretty, uh, a lot of live television, a lot of very simple sets and, and low production values.
1: Another thing I liked about this was the uh, setting of the, the moon base. It's like a plant, uh, production plant of some yeah. kind. Very eerie it seems like it's a huge place and yet it's so sparsely populated a lot of the time on the outside. And when Quatermass is investigating, he's kind of walking through these big pipe things and no one's around and the black and white, it's very eerie.
2: I think anytime that you're in a, in a, in a big building like that and or a big complex and there's not very many people around, it can be, it can be creepy, you know, in my, in my youth, I, um, <laughs> I had some friends and I, we would, we would go exploring obviously. And and we would go into like abandoned houses and abandoned places and, and buildings and things. And so you would go in some of these places and it's like big areas that are sparsely populated. And, and it, it it definitely an eerie feeling. I remember, gosh, what was it? 2015. My daughter Kayla and I went on a, uh, Trip through Kansas going to like all sorts of you know roadside attractions, you know, the largest ball of twine. And there was when we were headed towards the geographic center of the United States, which is in Kansas of all places, I guess it have to be right. The town that you went through before you got to it, I mean, there was nobody in the town. We never saw anybody. I mean, mm-hmm. never, I mean, there were houses, there were buildings, but there were no major businesses. There was nobody. I mean, it was like you could have filmed an apocalypse movie there. It was very, very creepy. And then you get on this road to go to where the geographic center is. And it's this little two lane road. And it just seems like the road's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, up and down these hills. And then there it is, the geographic center, you know, and uh, and we laughed because, you know, it's like there's nobody else around. But then you get to the geographic center and there were three other people there. There was a lady who had driven in from Nebraska, and then there were two old hippies in a VW bus with a, a a paper map on the picnic table, you know, mapping out their their journey across the United States. And they really were, they were leftover hippies, you know, they, they were older and still in their VW bus and having a time. When you're in that situation, yeah, I, I always kind of, when I see movies like this, where you're in a big, vast area and there's like, nobody around i always go back to those experiences i've had and it can be very very creepy
1: yeah anything that's normally populated and then it's empty when i lived in dallas i went to six flags over texas after it closed and everything was dark i knew somebody and got in creepy creepy amusement well, just, parks in the dark are really scary <laughs> i gonna say
2: that's just horror movie material there <laughs> i mean there's it's one thing to go into a, an old abandoned farmhouse which i did in my youth and i'm like I, Think back now I'm like man what could I have stumbled upon you know it's like I'm, I'm wiser now and I would never do that but uh, I know people do it all the time but yeah I'm, I'm a little smarter than that back then yeah I used to do that amusement park never did do the amusement park thing you're, you're one up on me that that I think would have been a little creepy
1: and then building on the area it gets to outright horrific and it, it's left for us to imagine I can't remember what They're trying to flow chemicals or something into these big tanks where these monsters are, and it gets plugged. And Quatermass leads to the conclusion that the pipe has been blocked by human pulp. Yes. uh, Because I guess one of the guys went into the tank or something, and he plugged up the pipe. That's a gruesome image. And it kind of gruesome for
2: 1957, too. I mean, that's, yeah, thankfully we didn't see that.
1: The only other plot thing I want to ask you about is the ending, and so we can wait on that if you've got anything else you want to say about the story or the plot.
2: I think it moved along at, at, a, at a fairly swift pace. Again, I think around the third act, it, it kind of uh, started to drag just a little, but then it really kind of escalated in the final act, and, and things were moving along at a rather, a rather quick pace. I was pleasantly surprised on this movie. I went in with low expectations because this one is considered... Usually the lesser of the three, generally speaking. And again, I came out of it liking it the most. Now I will say, like Quatermass Experiment is like you know it's like right there underneath this one, so there's not a lot of gap between these uh, first two films for me. I was very pleasantly surprised and and glad. I mean, surprised that or disappointed that I had taken me this long to, to see this movie. So this is one that you know, obviously I, I will see the Quatermass experiment again at some point. I've seen it several times over the years and I'll see it again. This is one I will definitely make sure that I, I revisit. I definitely enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. I just think it's not as well known and because of its availability. And I, I think as more people see it based solely, you know, on just what we're saying about it, I think it'll raise a little bit higher at people's. Yeah. Uh, hopefully. My question is, and again, this is one where Quatermass, Quatermass leaps to conclusions and he forms these things and I don't really know, understand, but I, this is just a clarification for me. They discover on the dark side of the moon, this, I'm assuming this, the source of these monsters, maybe it's a space. I'm not sure what, so he's going to remotely fire his rocket to go up. So the rocket shoots, does it hit that thing or does it just explode in the sky? Um, how exactly what happened that that saved the day? I thought that it hit it, but you see it explode like yeah, like it's not even in space. I mean, that could have been the chain reaction or something. I just I wasn't real clear what happened, and you know, not that it matters. I just wondered if you knew what happened.
2: I'm making an assumption, yeah. yeah. And so I mean, yeah, I
1: it would make sense that it hit the thing, or else it you would make yeah, it would make sense.
2: I suppose there's, I mean, I suppose there could be another answer. Yeah. But that, that's what I thought anyway.
1: Yeah. Okay. What about the cast of, of this one? The different person uh, actor plays Lomax.
2: Right. We've got, uh, obviously, we, like, you know, we've mentioned this several times. Brian Donlevy back again as, as Quater Mass for his second and last time. John Longdon uh, is now the new Inspector Lomax. He actually was in uh, quite a few early British Alfred Hitchcock films. Blackmail, Gino and the Peacock, The Skin Game, uh, Jamaica Inn, lots of British film and TV. A lot of stuff that I didn't immediately recognize. We have journalist Jimmy Hall. He's a, he's a supporting character, one of the bigger supporting characters, played by Sydney James, apparently well-known for the Carry On film series. I've only seen one of those Carry On films. It was the one...
1: Screaming one?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was funny. I guess it didn't make me want to see more, but it's, it, you know, they're also not as easy to find here in the States, I don't think. We have Brian Forbes playing the character of Marsh. He was in uh, Yesterday's Enemy, um, which is another Hammer War film. He was also in the second film in the Pink Panther series, a shot in the dark, one that often gets overlooked because it doesn't have Pink Panther in the title. Tom Chateau plays Vincent Broadhead, the member of Parliament, who was kind of causing some issues, and uh, eventually dies. Actually, in the movie,
1: he I was think in. It might have fr- been his pulp that was blocking the pipe.
2: I think it was. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, he was in the Frozen Dead. It's been a while since I've seen that one, but okay. So we mentioned as well Nigel Neal and Val Guest uh, worked on the screenplay. Val Guest was back again as a director. Oh, and I forgot to mention. Hammer legend Michael Ripper plays the character of Ernie. Always nice to see Michael Ripper in a Hammer film. The only other little tidbit I had on this one is that this was the first movie, apparently, to have the Roman numeral two in the title. Hmm. And I'm trying to think, and I think that's probably correct, because I can't think of any movie prior to that that actually used that designation and honestly not very many after that it became much more commonplace in the 70s and and going forward but I'm trying to think of other films in the 50s or 60s that use that designation and I I can't come off I I can't think of any right off the top of my head I know there's probably got to be something in the 60s but you know it's once you get in the 70s you started having having that designation a bit more
1: that's so interesting. I always wonder when there's a number in the title if it's Roman numeral is and I always go by IMDB they've got the number two, but if you look at the also known it's a variety of Roman numerals and numbers yeah yeah so, and there, but there the poster both. has the Roman numeral too
2: yeah so it was definitely released both ways at various times so hmm. I don't know why you would do one and then feel like you needed to change it and do the other. Quatermass 2, a.k.a. Enemy from Space. I enjoyed it. My favorite of the three films.
1: Very good. Yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. We recommend it. Get
4: back!
5: Who were they running from? Ah! What have they seen? Ah! Whom do they fear? There are five million answers to these questions, and every one of them is a shocker. Uh, Stop it! Stop it! Terrible! Oh, Terror. Five million years old spills into our time to make two worlds collide. what is happening here and now can affect the next five million years it was what i was afraid of the thing got a huge intake of energy the very substance of it seemed to be coming alive and And you can't see this world any longer they feel it they see it the archaeologist who digs back into the past to unearth more horror than the human mind can bear Quatermass, the scientist, who comes face to face with five million years of terror. Rooney, it's Barbara. She's the one. Get down here, quick. She can see into the pit and knows the terrifying truth.
4: Oh, man. Ah.
5: He can see into the pit, but he will not believe what he sees. They will kill me. Who? What were? Them. Them. He saw the creatures. And they were alive. You descend into the pit of hell as you share their horror. Listen, I'm advising you all to leave. There may be grave danger. I tell you, this could be dangerous. get back! Get back!
2: It's the most puzzling case yet for Professor Quatermass, as he coincidentally learns about the discovery of human remains during underground construction at Hobbs End Station. However, those don't interest him nearly as much as the impenetrable spacecraft found nearby. Forget everything you know about the history of our species, because Quatermass concocts a theory that encompasses everything from the origin of man to modern-day ghosts and goblins.
1: Waiter, Mass in the Pit was relieved, released in London on September 29, 1967, and was released in the United States on February 7, 1968, as 5 million years to Earth. And that is when Jeff's trouble began. 20 million miles to Earth, 5 million years to Earth. What's what? I can't keep these movies straight. Written solely by Nigel Neal this time, directed by Roy Ward-Baker, this is a long one, Richard. It clocks in at 97 minutes, so it just exceeds an hour and a half by just a few minutes. You kind of indicate you didn't like this as much. What uh, do you think about Quatermass in the Pit?
2: This is, I believe, the third time I've seen this one. So I've seen this one less than the first film i had it back on vhs and then i recorded it off turner classic movies gosh a decade ago at least so five million years to earth is the version that i saw and then uh, i watched that same off-air recording again this movie is as well on blu-ray from shout factory selling for about 25 dollars. it's a little bit more than the other two don't know why but it is also readily available but i stuck with the old off-air recording there's always something warm about seeing Robert Osborne pop up on Turner classic movies and those old Turner classic movie jingles that are now long gone. It just, I, I miss that version of, of, of Turner classic movies. So the thing is I tried remembering what my thoughts were on previous viewings and I didn't have any. Um, so I, I think that's was kind of telling for me going into it. And, ah, uh, so <laughs> I don't dislike the movie. I don't. Uh, I know this is a much beloved film amongst Hammer fans and amongst Quatermass fans. It is my least favorite of the three. And it's Andrew Keir's performance as, as Quatermass. I don't know. There are times that I'm okay with it because, again, I'm visualizing this as a trilogy. It's been... 10 years since the last movie he's not as abrasive or as as arrogant as he's been he's played very differently in this film very much the way that nigel neal envisioned quatermass that's why he really loves this movie is because he loves andrew Keir's performance i don't know that it works as well for me though i I like the brian dunlavey quatermass version from the second film Although I do like elements of, of this version of Quatermass. mass, I do like that he's a little warmer. But there's something about it that he doesn't come across as dynamic in this film. For me, I, I stumbled over that performance um, a little bit. And I think that the story overall, it's it's I liked elements of the story. At times, it, it I felt like it was a little confusing as we were heading into the final act. When we f- do see the, the insect-like creatures, man, they needed a little more than the, you know, 25-cent budget that they had. I'm thinking, you know, it was very obvious that they're little figures or whatever. It reminded me of some scenes... From Doctor Who in the early 70s, there's some Doctor Who, I think it's Planet of the Daleks, actually, with the third uh, Dr. John Pertwee, and that showing this army of Daleks, right? Well, their, their budget was really low, so they get toy Daleks and basically just lined them up to give this impression and, and use mirrors and all this other crazy stuff. When you're looking at it, it's like, man, those are some cheap-looking Daleks because they're toy Daleks it pulled me out of the moment when they had that scene a couple of times, even though it's not a hundred percent in focus and like, you know, there's things going on and I'm sure that was done to try to hide the fact that they li- they really didn't look that convincing. And I, I don't know, that pulled me out of the moment. And I was like, that's, I wish they, they would have done better with some stock footage of, of some insects, you know, or something would have been more believable, I think, than that. Trust me, I've seen cheap monsters in other movies and they don't pull me out of the moment. For some reason, I think because this one was approaching everything so serious and trying to elevate itself. It's like, no, this is not a B movie monster flick. So if I if I'm going into a B movie flick, I expect to see a B movie monster. If I'm being told that this is more of a, a an A-level film, I expect the special effects to be a bit more A level, and then you kind of get thrown out of the moment with that. It was disappointing a little bit. The script to me was just a little more convoluted. Well, <laughs> and, and I don't know, it, it it didn't flow as well for me, especially as we get to the final act. But I I did like you know the journey that we we, we were taking and I did like the the overall setup, and I did like a lot of the elements, but Ultimately, for me, that they kind of lost me as we were heading in towards the final act. I was just trying to wrap my head around. It's like, you know, what was going on? And a little highbrow at times for me. And I guess maybe I wasn't in the right frame of mind. Maybe I was just wanting something a little bit more lighthearted. You know, my mind is thinking, I need to rewatch this movie again with a different mindset because maybe my my mindset going into my viewing i wasn't in the mood for this level of of science fiction i was i was wanting something a little bit more lighthearted a little more saturday afternoon you know popcorn type film and it's definitely not that that might have played a big part in and why ultimately i didn't enjoy this one as much as the first two now
1: it's very apocalyptic the the scale the stakes are higher. I think Mass definitely is, this is later in his, well, I'm going to say career, but then I'm going to read you this quote that he said, I think he is tired. And uh, somebody says something to him and he says, I never had a career, only work. So, you know, this is somebody that has been working every day of his life on whatever it is he believes, his latest crusade, you know, so he, I believe he's tired and weary. Uh, Ten years later, this film is in color. Uh, It has a different look and feel. I mean, even Hammer as a a studio, has their movies are shifting the way that they look. It's a little more sort of crowded. There's, you know, the sets are a little more cramped and there's more props and and things on the set. So it it looks different. We don't see Quatermass for a good, oh, maybe a quarter of the film. In fact, he's not even top billed. Is
2: that quarter or quater? I was, sorry.
1: did I say quarter?
2: No, you didn't. You didn't. Oh. <laughs> I'm messing with you. Sorry. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> but I did. I did enjoy the Mass experience. But anyway, James Donald is Doctor Roney. He's billed highest, and you know Mass really stumbles upon this. He's it really has nothing to do with him, and he is only involved, you know, tangentially. Yeah. But then, of course, becomes, you know, sucked into it. So it's it's different. I wonder if you had seen this first. You know, would you have liked Andrew Keir and then been kind of taken aback by Brian Donlevy? I don't know. Probably. I mean, because
2: they're really vastly different performances. I feel like I, I might enjoy his performance more upon a revisit. Maybe not watching the other two films, but approaching this one at a later date as a standalone film and try to to revisit it with a fresh set of eyes. I think I might enjoy it more.
1: And I was going to tell you that uh, this was my second viewing. I had I put it off for a long time. I mean, I'm I'm generally more horror. in in science fiction kind of secondary. And I don't know why something about it just didn't appeal to me. So when I did watch it the first time, I absolutely loved it. And I'm like, you were with Quatermass too. I'm like, why did I wait so long? You know, this is great. I didn't like it as much the second time. I I liked it. But the first time I saw it, I was like, this is a revelation. You know, this is a fantastic movie. And I didn't have that same experience the second time. And then the, the Martians you mentioned, so oddly I didn't have trouble with the scenes of the masses of them marching, but the paper mache one alien, I kind of had trouble with. I'm surprised that the actor's hands didn't have green paint on it when they set it down, you know, it just, and this is a case where uh, I think maybe color hurt it. I'm looking at your little friend over your left shoulder and, That looks better than the, I think, the the color Martian, especially the blood, you know, the green paint that was oozing out of it. I, I try not to let aliens bother me. Like, I love the giant claw, and I will defend its goofy look, you know, to the end of the Earth. Because who's to say what an alien does or doesn't look like i mean it could be beyond our imagination and an, an alien a martian may look like a paper mache grasshopper i don't it, know maybe it
2: could. you know it could. so
1: i try not to let that bother me and that didn't bother me as much as it as it apparently did you
2: I, you know i think you're you're onto something as far as black and white sometimes uh, black and white has such a wonderful look to it and some films I feel are almost made for, for black and white. And, and this is a movie that I think could have been black and white, nothing in it. I don't think that, you know, that color necessarily benefited it. Black and white production would have covered up the, the paper mache aspects. You know, I I think of Dr. Who again, going back some of the stories in the 1960s, which clearly had low budget end up looking better than some of the stories that came like in the 1980s. When you get towards the last three or four seasons of Doctor Who, they did film on locations, they did videotape when they were in the studios. And that videotape automatically makes it look like a, a soap opera, you know, in the States. It, or Saturday morning, Land of the Lost has a special look to it. Land of the Lost, I love it. Don't take that the wrong way. We. Had a conversation about my love for Land of the Lost beforehand, but Doctor Who had always, you could tell the difference. And in the late 80s, their budget was slashed to where location shots were also videotaped. That really made the show look significantly cheaper. And because of that, certain, you know, special effects really came across looking pretty rough. And then you watch some of those black and white episodes that were some 20 years earlier. And they look like they've got a bigger budget. when in reality, they had, you know, a budget that wasn't, you know, that much different, if not a little less than what they were dealing with in the 80s.
1: And I'm thinking about that now, because to me, this from one sense, this seems a little ahead of its time, because this really seems to me like a more of a 70s movie. I mean, it's got that sort of satanic feeling to it. And so that makes me think, well, that should be in color. But then, I mean, think about like curse of the demon night of the demon that is black and white i kind of i think this would have been better in black and white yeah i think so too and then
2: just everything is exploding right now as they've heard us say that they're like no no that's
1: not right and then the everything but the kitchen sink i really admire what they were trying to do and and maybe they succeeded you know it starts off and oh it's aliens and then it's like oh well They've seen aliens in the past, and those look like gargoyles and demons that we've all been afraid of. So they're bringing those two worlds kind of together. And then it turns out, well, maybe they weren't just visiting. Maybe they've been manipulating humankind all along. So that's kind of interesting. Then it turns out maybe we came from them, and we share this collective unconscious with all of humanity. It's a lot. It's a lot. I, I mean, I admire, like, wrapping every little thing of the occult into, like, one thing you know it all comes from this but it's it blows the mind i mean that's a lot to think about in the process
2: there's a lot yeah there's a lot in this in the script much more so than what we got in the first two films uh they they packed a lot in the running time i think some people love that aspect of it because it's it's a deeper movie on some levels um but you know sometimes Things can get too deep. For me anyway, I think that uh, th- with this viewing, it got a little little too dense at times.
1: And I'm not sure about the ending. I don't understand how sticking metal in the ground would stop everything, but it's exciting as heck, him climbing that crane and then it falling. and uh, oh, yeah. It's a great ending, but like all three of them, I'd, I'll buy it, but I don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sometimes you just got to go with the flow a little bit. You know, science fiction is that way. I mean, science fiction doesn't always deal with science. Sometimes Carl is very science minded. And so depending on the movie or the show, you know, in her frame of mind, sometimes she, she can she can see something that is so outlandish and she can just go with it. Uh, and then other times she's like, oh, come on. She didn't say that with this movie. She was pulled out of the moment by the, by the Martians, and she just kind of started laughing. And She's like, that's the best they could do. And I said, yeah, they could have done something a little different. I want to go back and revisit this one with a standalone fresh set of eyes at some point down the road. When the memories of this viewing have lapsed, I hope that I remember, yeah, don't watch the first two. Watch it by itself, and I think I'll enjoy it more.
1: I have not said anything thus far, but I really can't rank them. I like these three equally. I tried, the, you know, there's things I like about each. Not really a thing I dislike. Like I said, I think they each have a spot where they drag. I really tried to think, okay, which is my favorite? I, and I I can't do it as of this moment. I, I like them all three equally. I think they're all three really good. Got to just mention the cast real quick. And the mainly the thing I want to mention is Barbara Shelley. Because we the other two movies haven't really had a female counterpart. And I don't know that we'd say she takes the place of Lomax, but she does exist there to kind of show the softer side of Quatermass. Mass. And she get the first time they meet, she kind of gives him a look, but it's not like there's anything romantic. I mean. No. She's a scientist almost to his caliber, and they kind of team up and they work together on the investigation. I liked that very answer. much.
2: Very much like old school companion and doctor relationship. Um, Very much so in that, you know, before the doctor got romantic with his companions, which did not happen until, you know, the the current version of Doctor Who. Classic Doctor Who, that never happened. You know, there was never a hint of romance. Oftentimes, the the companion brings the humanity out of the or into the doctor out of the doctor oftentimes you know then the the doctor is fatherly protective of the companion and so i felt very much that this could have been a older doctor and his companion type of relationship where they're kind of equals in some ways but in other ways they're not and uh, i i liked her character in this one it definitely there was some doctor who channeling going on there which is interesting because this was written, the script was written by Nigel Neal, and he didn't like the fact that Doctor Who stole some of his ideas. But I'm thinking, well, by this point in the show, I mean that on uh, Doctor Who's show, that was kind of already established a little bit. But it was definitely in the 70s that became a, a bigger factor of Doctor Who. So Maybe he's right. Maybe Doctor Who did steal a little bit from, from his ideas. I don't know.
1: Anyone else from the cast you want to mention?
2: You know, we've got Andrew Keir as, as Equator Mask. Some things, other things he did. Some Hammer stuff. He did uh, Pirates of Blood River, Devil Ship Pirates. He was in Dracula, Prince of Darkness. He was in Doctor Who, Dalek's Invasion Earth, 2150 AD. So Barbara Shelley as Barbara Judd. Is that right? That seems yeah. wrong. Okay. okay. She was in uh, Village of the Damned, which we've covered previously. She was in The Gorgon, which we also did, I believe. Uh, she was in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and The Mad Monk. And she played the character of Sarasta in uh, Doctor Who, the story Planet of Fire in 1984. James Donald as Dr. Roney. Uh, a couple of big films in the 60s. He was in Bridge on the River Kwai and The Great Escape. Julian Glover played the character of Colonel Breen. Now, he did lots of television work. He was in Blake Seven, popular British sci-fi series, and he was in one of the all-time best Doctor Who stories, City of Death. In 1979, he played the character of a Scaroth. He had previously played in a Doctor Who story from 1965 called The Crusade, where he played Richard the Lionheart. He was also in Empire Strikes Back, For your eyes only, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He was in Game of Thrones. Still working at the age of 87. He's got films in various stages of production. The movie was directed by Roy Ward Baker. Lots of credits. Lots of TV episodes of The Avengers, The Saint. Other movies like Moon Zero Two, Vampire Lovers, Scars of Dracula, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde asylum and now the screaming starts vault of hair you get the vault of hair. vault of horror you get the idea a few little tidbits i think we've already said this but i'll say it again nigel neal liked this one the best out of the hammer trilogy mostly due to andrew kirk's performance roy ward baker says this is one of his best filmmaking experiences val guest was asked to direct but had other commitments and andre morel was asked to reprise his role from the 1958 TV series, but declined.
1: I would like to see Andre Morell and some of the other people that played Quatermass on the TV just to see how they fit in the mix of Don Levy and Keir so different. I'd like to see how they fit in. Again, only
2: two episodes exist from the first story from Reginald Tate. You've got John Robinson's Quatermass 2 all exist, and then Quatermass in the Pit. Uh, Andre Morell, all of his six episodes exist. I don't know if they've ever been released in the States officially on DVD. I believe there was a set that had them all in the UK, but that's something I need to check out. Yeah, I actually would like to see those as well.
1: So well, if you want to tell what hap- has come of Quatermass since this movie, I will tell you that I have a VHS two cassette set in a box that opens. Like this, they're connected. Like on one side of the spine, it's just called Quatermass, but it's a modern, you know, by 80s or 90s standard. Never watched it. (laughs) His legacy continues. They are still doing stories with him. They did, yeah. So you you
2: probably have there is the 1979 television series, which was one under a couple, several different names: Uh, Quatermass or Quatermass Four or The Quatermass Conclusion. Hmm. The mindset was that it was continuing the first three stories. um, It aired on ITV television in the late fall of 1979. Four 54-minute episodes, so probably two episodes per cassette. John Mills played the character of Quatermass. He's playing Quatermass, again, as a little bit older. Uh, I don't know much else about it. I think Nigel Neal liked, I'm trying to think of my notes here. Um, He was not happy with the fourth story. Uh, He felt like John Mills' performance as Quatermass was too ordinary. He didn't feel like Quatermass really stood out at all in that particular, particular story. There was, and I don't have the year, but there was a BBC radio production called the Quatermass Memoirs. Now, this was written by Neil. It was part documentary, part drama. The dramas segment was set shortly before the 1979 movie. But I think it came after, the BBC radio production came after, but Andrew Keir reprised his role of Quatermass for the radio production. And then the most recent version was the Quatermass experiment, a uh, remake of the original story. It aired live on BBC in 2005 with Jason Fleming playing the lead role of Crater Mass. And
1: And I guess, is it really just those three stories? I mean, this isn't like he didn't write a series of novels or anything. And these are just three stories. It's just three stories. (laughs) The old IMDB tells me that as recently as 2019, there were plans to make a new Crater Mass. From Hammer Films and Legendary Pictures. Oh,
2: I believe that's it. I, I, you know, I don't see that there is anything else out there.
1: Yeah, it just says he's an award-winning screenwriter. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, interesting.
2: As we've talked about, I think you can watch these movies standalone. You can watch them together. You can look at it as the same character, a different version of the character. I think any any way that you you approach it, I think you'll have a good time. Uh, Quatermass is played a little differently in all three films. So um, you can imagine him as the same character at different stages or uh, just enjoy him as standalone films. And I think that they work as well either either way.
1: Could there be a Quatermass multiverse where <laughs> Andrew <laughs> is different but the same and I just want to say, this has been a fun episode. I think it's been really good. But Richard, I am very disappointed. Not nearly enough Doctor Who references.
2: <laughs> we squeezed in Star Trek in there, which I didn't think we'd pull off until I saw Marina Sirtis's name. I had a feeling we would get an overload of Doctor Who references. Yes. And, uh, and we did. So that makes up for some of those episodes where there's no Doctor Who references. So I was happy. I was satisfied.
1: Richard, we have something very special for our final break before new business. We have the world premiere trailer for a brand new podcast. Have you heard about this? I have. It's
2: called Hammerama. And our good friends, Alistair Hughes and Steve Churik, have launched this new podcast, kind of tied in with the Diecast movie podcast. They're going to be doing the roll of the die and picking a movie to talk about. But they're going to be focusing exclusively on Hammer films, and who doesn't love a good conversation about Hammer films? It's always worth the revisit of watching these films two, three, four, five times to refresh your memory, and then to sit down and listen to a great conversation. And you know, I just can imagine that that Steve and Alistair are going to knock it out of the park. We've already heard them on uh, Monster Kid Radio. They've 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 done some uh, guest spots there. We know how they're. Uh, camaraderie and and uh, their banter works off of each other I think it's going to be a lot of fun uh, diving into the wonderful world of Hammer Films.
1: Yes so Alistair is the author of Info Gothic an unauthorized graphic guide to Hammer Horror beautiful beautiful book he's a graphic artist graphic design artist I'm not sure what he can draw <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he has designed the graphic for the podcast. We'll put it in the show notes for you to take a look at. It's beautiful. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this. Love some hammer. So shall yeah. we take a listen?
2: Absolutely. Let's take a listen.
1: I'm Al from New Zealand. And
6: I'm Steven from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome
5: to our new podcast. Enter freely and of your own will.
6: Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast movie podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either
5: side of the globe. Each month we will throw a die to decide which category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss: the Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, Science Fiction, Prehistory, or the Experimental 1970s.
6: We will cast our international eyes across then and now reviews of the movie, its place in the Hammerverse, our encounters with the stars, a film poster critique, and unusual
5: associated merchandise. So join us for our bite sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth.
6: Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.
1: Welcome back. We are here with new business and we'll kick off with some home video releases, quite a few in the next month or so, Richard. Speaking of sci-fi, there's something called Starflight, The Plane That Couldn't Land. It's from 1983. It's coming out from Code Red on March 8th. Very familiar VHS cover box. Hal Holbrook is the star and there's like a space shuttle type rocket behind him. I never knew there was the subtitle, The Plane That Couldn't Land. I've but I was familiar with Starflight. that's your cup of tea. If Island of the Fishman is your cup of tea, that's coming out on March 8th also from 1979, full moon features. This one intrigues me for some reason. I don't know. Do you know any history about it or? I've heard
2: of it. That's about it. You know, I mean, I've I've heard mixed things on it. Some people say it's cheesy fun and others say that it's an abomination.
1: Oh goodness, not an abomination. Who
2: knows? Who knows?
1: The next week from Shout Factory, the latest in the Hammer, Mark Maddox cover movies Nightmare from 1864. That's got to be a typo. I think that's <laughs> probably 1964. I think 1964. Right? 1964 okay. Yes. And then if you'd care to pronounce them, I will let you on March 23rd. Two Mexican films from VCI. Yeah. Cadav- La de Cadaveres.
2: Yes. And
1: El Escapulario.
2: You know, that was on my radar. I was interested in it until I saw that their VCI, and VCI is notorious for putting out Mexican films with English dubbing. I can do that, but if my preference is always to get original language. It can make all the difference. I actually have the uh, Ladrón de Cadavers. The late, great Vince Rotolo covered that many years ago over at uh, the B-Movie cast. I do believe, because I have a copy of that film with subtitles. I decided I don't need to get this Blu-ray that's going to give me English language version. And I'm just going to be a snob about that. I don't want that.
1: Well, (laughs) then at the end of March 29th, we've got several things from Code Red. We have Screams of a Winter Night from 1979. That's an anthology. I've never seen that. Seems like I've heard some stuff about that recently. So that might be worth checking out. Have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. All right. Then we have a double feature from Kino Lorber, and I think that's a maybe a great idea. They haven't done too much of that. They've put out a lot of classic horror films just as standalones, but let's package them up as double features. We've got The Man from Planet X from 51 and The Amazing Transparent Man from 1960 that are coming out on a double feature disc. It's
2: like a good double feature. I know they've got those two early Fu Manchu films that are coming out at some point this year as a double feature, which is a... Brilliant idea, a no-brainer for me to purchase those two films, and I'm still waiting for the Santo films.
1: Then also on the 29th from Kino Lorber, standalone "Beyond the Time Barrier" from 1960.
2: <laughs> that one, I've watched that a couple of times, and I, 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 it's okay. I
1: don't remember. That's another one of those titles that it's always beyond something, and it has time in it, and I get confused on whether. I have seen them or not. It's it's not bad. It's yeah, not. I have seen it. I liked it pretty well. I gave it a seven. And then finally, on the 29th, from Vinegar Syndrome, we have Beware Children at Play from 1989. Odd mix of movies coming out. Anything I missed? I don't think so. I don't
2: think so. What? We've been talking so much about Doctor Who. I know that, that there is another Doctor Who classic release coming out in April. It's not really horror related though, but uh, they I believe it's gonna be on they've been putting out classic stories from the 60s that are lo- that are partially lost and they've been animating them. Unfortunately, we don't get them same day release here in the states like we were for a while. They've got one coming out in April from the first doctor and it's supposedly it's going to be on Blu-ray which is a little different and is really going to throw my feng shui off because it blew right up against the DVDs on my shelf. They've also got another one coming out later this year, which definitely is kind of horror related, The Abominable Snowmen. Mm -hmm. I just picked up one uh, called The Web of Fear, which is, uh, that's a really good sci-fi horror uh, about these mechanical snowmen creatures that are terrorizing the underground subway system in uh, England. Yeah, it's uh, one of the better stories from the 1960s. So they animated uh, the one episode that is still missing. Well, I should say it's not in in, uh, the hands of the BBC. They found it several years ago down in South Africa, along with some other missing episodes. And when they were trying to bring it, basically trying to ship it, they had to cross several borders because South Africa is really kind of chopped up. In the process of crossing the borders for one of the countries, it ended up missing again. Somebody stole it. They've decided to finally animate that up. So hmm. anyway, little Doctor Who tidbits there for you. I don't have anything other uh, other than that. It will say, though, we don't talk about streaming services hmm. too often, but I got to say that I've had the Arrow video streaming service on a free trial this month, and They've got some good stuff on there. There's definitely some deep dive stuff. But, you know, if you missed out on the Gamera set, like I did, they do have all the Gamera films on there. If you could not bring yourself to to get that big Shaw Brothers set that came out, uh, they have all of those movies on there with some of the special features as well. They also have different versions so I mean you can kind of choose between English language foreign language they also you can do commentary on there so they've got the ones with actual commentary which I don't see that on any other streaming service Hmm. it's $4.99 a month I haven't got everything watched that I wanted to I will probably keep it for a month at least I've watched some really good documentaries on there and and I don't want to I don't want to keep it longer than a month. I see Oh, so much-
1: Richard, this reminds me so much of Shudder. When I know started, you were going to do a trial and you have it to this day.
2: I will <laughs> say that Shudder has a lot more content than Arrow yeah. does. So, and an Arrow has a lot of obscure cult stuff that is probably not in my wheelhouse, but they do have some spaghetti westerns and all those Shaw Brothers films. So, just joking with our good friend Mr. Turk the other night. And I said, there's three movies that I wanted to see and, and i'm trying to remember now it, if i can make it as funny but it was five deadly venoms dirty hoe and uh, <laughs> the mighty peaking man and he said you know if you said that in, in the wrong company they'd really look at you <laughs> you know pretty crazy and i said well yeah they probably would anyway arrow video check it out if you're so inclined and then shutter has added a lot of stuff in the last couple of months If you have been keeping an eye on that Severn Films box set, uh, The Woodland Horrors and Days of Dark Bewitched, I I just butchered the title. They have that full documentary and not all, but they have most of the movies from the box set on there. If you're into folklore or not, they've got a lot of those fun movies on there. Plus, they've got a lot of some stuff that is actually were Arrow videos, the American horror box sets that they put out. Uh, they've got those six movies. They've added a lot in the last couple of months. That new Boris Karloff documentary is on there. Just wanted to give a shout out because those both of those services are... I'm always home, you know, home media, physical media in my dirty little paws. But there are some advantages, clearly, to streaming to pay a fee and then be able to have access to all these films that... You might not want to add to your collection, but, you know, you still want to watch or maybe you want to add and you can't afford some of the crazy prices on some of these limited edition sets. Once they go out of print, I support, you know, those cases where digital is the best way to go. And, you know, you got services out there offering these films that most of us didn't even know existed a few years ago. uh, It's kind of cool. There you go. There's my public service announcement for Shutter and Arrow
1: Video. Nice. Birthdays for the coming month on March eleventh. I guess nineteen twenty one. I boy, my dates and numbers. We are recording at night. Uh, well, Sam I, Hall, I've been the same way through the show. I,
2: there's been some dates <laughs> that I'm looking at. I was like, that's not right.
1: <laughs> Sam Hall, writer on Dark Shadows, husband of Grayson Hall, who played Doctor Hoffman. We've talked about him, and we've talked about Dark Shadows in episodes ten and twenty. March 23rd, 1905, Joan Crawford. We talked about her in episode 38, our hagsploitation holiday. Uh, March 25th, 1920, and March 26th, 1931, respectively, Patrick Troughton and Leonard Nimoy. We've had enough Doctor Who and Star Trek references. Maybe we can let people put those two and two together. March 27th, 1923, Lorenzo Simple Jr., our very first episode, King Kong. He wrote the screenplay for that. And then April 1st, 1883, Lon Chaney Sr. Hmm, I wonder why I added that. We'll come back to that later. Anniversaries: March 9th, 1951, Man from Planet X. We mentioned that in our upcoming releases. March 16th, 1925, The Monster, a Lon Chaney movie. Hmm. I wonder why I put that yeah. on there. We'll come back to that in a minute. a trend. <laughs> yes, huh? That's odd. March 22nd, 1961, Conga. We talked about that in episode 28, uh, Britain under fire or under siege, I think. And uh, let's shout out uh, Derek at Monster Kid Radio. They recently, he recently covered Conga on uh, one of his episodes. And then finally, March 26, nineteen seventy three. Sisters episode nineteen was our Margot Kidder episode. Big month with lots of movies, birthdays, anniversaries. So let's now look to the future.
2: For that is where we will spend the rest of our lives.
1: <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> uh, what do we want to do first? We've got a couple comments. We got to find out what each of us are working on. We got to talk about our next episode. Um, you want to. Mention the Rondos?
2: Well, yes, let's talk about the Rondos. We want to thank everyone for nominating the Classic Horrors Club podcast uh, in the best podcast category. After celebrating our fifth anniversary, we have officially been nominated for the first time. We're on the ballot for this year's Rondo Awards now. There's like 30 podcasts in that category, and there's some definitely some some solid contenders. With that said, we've got some stiff competition. It's flattering to be nominated. Uh, I would certainly like to thank anyone who nominated us and anyone who chooses to vote for us. A lot of people are out there um, celebrating their nomination, and we're probably going to do what we normally do and play it a little more low-key. That's just how we play it. We'll kind of send out a reminder, I think, as it gets closer to the end date, which is quite a ways off. It's it's in April. Just reminding people to get out there and vote for whoever you so choose, uh, whether it's us or another podcast. We've got a lot of friends who are nominated in various categories. I could go down the list and I would miss somebody. So I don't want to do that because we've got a lot of people who listen to the show that. uh, or have been guests on this show or friends that have been nominated in various categories. So uh, just congratulations to everyone, one and all who've been nominated and uh, good luck in the voting season. And uh, thank you for the recognition.
1: Very nice. I only want to add one quick thing that they say the podcasting community is a very tight knit community. And we do have a lot of friends, like you said, that are other podcasters. And I genuinely feel that if any one of those should win, everyone else in the group is going to be thrilled and happy for them. So what's going on with you, Richard? What else are you working on besides podcast?
2: I've been cheating on you. As you were off taking care of business, uh, I was back on Dread Media. And in a little different way than I've done in the past, I actually reviewed movies proper with uh, host Desmond Reddick. I've been... Featured on that show for a very long time via voicemail. And then in the summer of 2015, I did my first movie review. So, gosh, coming up on almost seven years of doing formal reviews for Dread Media, that's absolutely insane when I think of that. But the opportunity popped up. It was perfect timing. Des wanted to do folk horror films in the month of February. And I said, wait, you know what? We're taking a little time off on the show, so I am absolutely free. And He said, you want to record together? And I said, I, I do. So by the time this is out, both films will be out uh, on the feed. We covered two films from that Severn box uh, set. We did Leptirica, uh, a Serbian film from 1973, which is kind of a vampire flick of sorts. And then uh, a film called Locusts probably butchering the name. There's probably some other fancier pronunciation that uh, came out in 1970. And that was a Polish film, if I'm correct. I'm trying to remember now. Uh, We covered both those films. And if, if the planets and stars aligned, as we're recording this, I'm hopeful that tomorrow I'm going to be posting a review over at the blog to kind of tie in. I saw a movie called Il Demonio. Demon, demonio, demon, yeah, demon, il demonio, the demon, uh, a 1963 Italian film, and I'm going to throw this out. I was blown away by a couple of the scenes in this movie, and I'm like, did I not ever hear any reference? Because the spider walk sequence in The Exorcist, they stole it from this movie ten years earlier. Hmm. There is a spider walk sequence that is done exactly like we see in the and the deleted scene in the exorcist that's now in the special edition actually done much creepier as a matter of fact not down a flight of stairs but on the floor as the priest is standing there these people are standing there and no special effects involved this this woman must have been a contortionist she's possessed and there's scenes where she is being held and she the cross is in front of her and she spits on the cross. There's a scene earlier in the film where she is touching herself rather erotically while writhing about in, in some type of demonic way. A really good film. I highly recommend anybody check it out. It's a film that I guess hasn't been readily available until recently, now the courtesy of Severn Films. and. I was really shocked that in, in all the different things, if I missed it, you know, it went right over my head. But I've never seen anyone talk about that spider sequence in The Exorcist hmm. and giving proper credit to a film that came out 10 years earlier. And they had to have known that film existed.
1: Looking at the uh, synopsis now on IMDb, and I know why you watch this, Richard. <laughs> a lonely, sexually uninhibited young peasant.
2: <laughs> well. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean she she causes she's possessed by the time the movies start, and she's really problematic. I mean she's kind of like uh, a crazy ex girlfriend at <laughs> times. I mean curses the guy, and I don't. It's a really good film. It's got some really great visuals in it and uh, an interesting story. I mean she ends up in a convent at one point after the villagers have kicked her out, and at one point she begs for help. You know, she knows that she's done wrong. She knows that she's talked to the devil. Later on, she's choking the life out of a, out of a nun. Good stuff. Recommended. It's on Shutter if anyone so desires. And again, with any luck, that review will be up. So that's, I mean, primarily what I've been doing. I've also continued to post uh, Sherlock Holmes full-time radio shows. Not every Wednesday, some weeks. I, you know, just work has kept me busy and I haven't got a chance to post it up. But that's kind of like my ongoing thing. If I skip a week or two here, I'll pick it up again and, and kind of try to do it chronologically. I'm doing the Basil Rathbone, Nigel, Bru- Nigel Bruce series. And I can tell you that coming up in March, I've got something non-horror related, but I'm, I'm kind of looking in forward to this. It's been on my back burner for a while and it's I'm going to pull it off. I'm going to do a series on the uh, female director Alice Guy-Blaché. I may have talked about her on the show before, I think I have. She's kind of a forgotten early director uh, at a time when when women just weren't directing films, and she's been kind of rediscovered in recent years. Uh, There's a great documentary I pulled a lot of information from and kind of using that to kind of put together an article to kind of hopefully expose the world to her she was essentially buried she got kind of shoved aside by other french filmmakers she was very prolific and then through a series of events got forgotten unfortunately and her story is just in mean, the documentary was incredibly well done i'm going to be covering kind of doing an article about her as well as reviewing three of her films this has been on my back burner for probably a year. I'm looking forward to it. That's coming up in the month of March. What have you been doing, sir?
1: Well, I am back full force. And on the blog, we've got our reviews on Mondays, TV Terror Guide on Fridays with TV movies. We're up to 70, 1975 now. Some of the movies I've been looking at on Monday, I, I did The Comeback, which is a Pete Walker film. I had never seen a Pete Walker film. That was interesting. I did Grizzly. And coming up is Mill of the Stone Women, which I've been looking forward to watching for a really long time. That's such a good movie. Uh, Did we talk about that? We did not.
2: That's on Shudder. And that was a random viewing I did. I want the Arrow video, Blu-ray. Oh,
1: man, there's a bunch of different versions on it. English, dubbed, released in another country, dubbed. I mean, there's four, at least four full different versions. Such
2: of a movie. beautiful film. Such a great film. Yeah, that, that's that been one of my recent discoveries. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely have to add that to the collection, which I don't say that very often anymore. I'm really picky. That's a, a definite hmm. definite ad for me. I look forward to your thoughts on that one. Yep.
1: On Wednesdays at DC Comics Guy, I'm uh, kicked back off with Metamorpho, who is, it's not so much the character, that I like about him though. I think he's really cool. It's, I just love the setup. Rex Mason is this adventurer who's works for the father of his girlfriend. And then the father has this sort of evil assistant that's in love with the girl. And he's always trying to do things to credit or kill Rex. And I don't know. I just really like it. And the art I love Ramona Freydon is it's a little bit cartoony, but it works perfect for a guy that can transform his body into different elements. And so I'm really enjoying that more than uh, I thought I was going to. So I got to say, every
2: time I see like you, know, you you posted some covers and stuff and you, you've been getting metamorpho for a while. Back in the day of the Peter Pan, you know, book and record sets and stuff. They put a record out one year that I thought was like supposed to be like stories, but it was actually like music. It was theme songs to various superheroes, you know, and I think there may have been stories with it, if I recall, but I only remember, I remember the metamorpho theme song. <laughs> it's like they, they gave it a theme song, like it was like a, you know, a long lost cartoon. And it always sticks in my head. When I see metamorpho, I got to say metamorpho, metamorpho. that was <laughs> the, the theme of It is so cheesy.
1: Uh, maybe I'll change the song that we go out on.
2: Go out on Metamorpho. Yeah, it's, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's that, it's stuck in my head after all these years and I can't get it out. Metamorpho, 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 metamorpho.
1: I will mention for We Belong Dead, the 30th anniversary issue is coming out. Some of the people who have written before were asked to write about, I don't think it was your favorite horror movie, but one of your favorites. So I'm writing about sisters. Oh. Sisters, another reason I mentioned that earlier. What uh, movies do I have to watch for next time, Richard? What are we going to talk about? Well, we, we mentioned
2: somebody a couple of times here, and uh, I think it's time we, we take a look at the films of Lon Chaney Sr. Uh, one of the fun things we do on the show, five years in and, and we've taken a look at a lot of the legendary actors when we when we do a spotlight episode you know we've done it on the likes of Faye Ray and and Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr and and Margot Kidder and you know I mean we've we covered uh, a wide variety but we have never done Lon Chaney Sr so to honor and and celebrate the the month of his birth we will uh take a look at three of his films No, we're not going to do The Hunchback of Notre Dame. No, we're not going to do Phantom of the Opera. That would be too easy. We're going to take a look at He Who Gets Slapped from 1924, The Monster from 1925, and The Unknown from 1927. You have reviewed some films over at your blog last October. I know that I'm already planning uh, in the month of April of doing some reviews to kind of Uh, do tie in. I I really want to see West of Zanzibar and the two versions of The Unholy Three. And I'm sure we will, as we always do, take a look at the career of Lon Chaney. Um, He is, I watched a couple of great documentaries in the last uh, several weeks on special effects. And one in particular, the, I think it was the Frankenstein Complex. They gave uh, a special shout out, not just to Jack Pierce, but also to Lon Chaney senior because he did his own uh, special effects makeup work at a time that nobody else was doing anything like he was and he was able to transform himself into amazing characters and, and not always in you know horror films just in in films in general he would do some amazing uh transformation we lost him far too young uh, Lon Chaney coming up
1: in the month of April cannot wait those movies are so good yeah. I was so surprised the ones that I watched when I was trying to clear off my DVR, but the monster is still remains. I'll, I'll probably watch them all again, but the monster will be a new watch for me.
2: And I got to say, I mean, I've seen the monster, the unknown, but like I have not seen he who gets slapped. I have not seen, as I just said, West of Zanzibar, the unholy three, either version. So I'm looking forward to some of these first time viewings. I love silent films and you know, a chance to finally sit down and see some of the Lon Chaney films that I've been kind of wanting to see, this now gives me purpose. So I'm really looking forward to it
1: as well. Until then, we invite you to leave us some feedback like uh, Mr. Angarola did earlier. We will remind you of the phone number without the melodic accompaniment. Eight. Why do I always say 816? I think that's Kansas City. 616 649 2582 That's 616-649-CLUB. Please call, give us a message, email us at classichorse.club at gmail.com. Join our Facebook group page, participate in the conversations there and rate us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done that yet. Anything else, Richard? I think that about covers it. All right. Well, we've got another song by the group Quatermass. This one is called One Blind Mice and that throws my English writer mind uh, off that we've got the plural and the singular mixed together, but from their 1970 album, Quatermass available on Apple music. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you on our YouTube channel and talking to you next month. Take care everyone. Stay
2: safe.